All right, David, thank you so much for leading us in that time of worship. And now, friends and family, it is time for us to dive into our study of God's Word this morning. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to the book of Exodus chapter 20. And we're going to be looking at just verse 13 this morning. So we've been journeying through the epic book of Exodus and we've been slowing down and looking at the Ten Commandments. Normally, we'll cover about a chapter at a time, but now that we're in the Ten Commandments, those laws that have become foundational for Western culture, we've taken our time, and we're going to look at each and every single one of these Ten Commandments one by one, week by week. And so today we arrive at the Sixth Commandment. So it's just one verse, Exodus 20, 13. Let's go ahead and read that brief verse together. We shall pray, and then we'll get into our study. Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. This is God's word. You shall not murder. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, and we thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us, Lord. We thank you that you've communicated what is necessary for mankind to know about you and about your will for the world. Lord, we just pray that we would be men and women who are transformed by the power of the word of God, that we would not only be hearers, but doers of the word. And Lord, we do ask for the aid of the Holy Spirit in hearing the teaching of Scripture aright. Lord, if we have any biases in our hearts, any barriers, any objections, Lord, to hearing the voice of the Spirit speaking through the Scriptures, Lord, we just pray you would remove those barriers this morning. We pray that you would give us tools and equip us to be men and women who rightly understand the Bible so that we do not put words into your mouth, which you have not spoken, nor take words out of your mouth, which you have spoken. Lord, we pray you would bless this time of study now. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, in 2016, Academy Award winner Mel Gibson released a movie entitled Hacksaw Ridge. Myself and a number of other local pastors in the Orange County area were invited to attend a pre-screening of that film before it was finally released to the public. The reason for that was is because Gibson intentionally chose a film that would appeal to the faith community. And so the story that he chose was the story of Desmond Doss. Doss was a World War II veteran and a conscientious objector to bearing arms in the war. The synopsis of the film is this. It was a biographical war film directed by Mel Gibson and written by Andrew Knight and Robert Shakin, based on the 2004 documentary, The Conscientious Objector. The film focuses on the World War II experiences of Desmond Doss, an American pacifist combat medic 
who, as a Seventh-day Adventist Christian, refused to carry or use a weapon or firearm of any kind. Doss became the first conscientious objector to be awarded the Medal of Honor for service above and beyond the call of duty during the Battle of Okinawa. So, if you've never seen that movie before, I highly recommend it to you. And even if you've seen it before, I would even recommend after this study that you go back and watch it in light of what we're going to discuss this morning. Because that movie highlights two key things for me as a Christian and a pastor. Number one, it highlights the power of the courage to live out your beliefs. It highlights the power of the courage to live out your beliefs. We know there's many people that believe the Bible is God's word. We even know there's people who not only believe the Bible is God's word, but they even have the right interpretation about certain things. And yet they don't have the courage to live out that truth. Doss is certainly not of that latter category. Desmond Doss and his, his uh, portrayed in that movie, he is somebody who believes what the word of God says in his heart. What he believes it says, he lives it out to the fullest. And so positively, I believe all of us Christians, it is a powerful encouragement and motivator to truly live out what we believe. But there's a second point to that movie. And that is the necessity of right interpretation. Desmond Doss, his whole premise as to why he cannot carry a firearm into battle is based off of what is a wrong interpretation of the Sixth Commandment. Exodus 20, verse 13, the passage in front of us today. Following the Old King James translation, which famously for hundreds of years was the primary English translation, and it was worded, Thou shalt not kill. Not murder, kill. And so his denomination, so he's a part of an interpretive community. He's not alone. He's got people around him. The Seventh-day Adventist position at that time was that the Sixth Commandment did not just prohibit murder, but as it sounds, prohibits any killing of any kind for any reason, including defending one's country in time of war. And so I find that movie to be so powerful because it shows us that interpretation has consequences. While many people today don't believe the Bible is God's word, even if you believe it's God's word, that doesn't always mean your interpretation of God's word is right. It is possible for Christians to be mistaken. And so what I'm hoping to do through our study today is give you some basic tools, very basic tools, a simple three-step process that will help us 
to arrive at good, sound, right interpretations of the Bible. So what should Doss have done? He could have done three different things. Number one, he could have done a study in the grammar. Number one, study the grammar. Now, not all passages, by the way, are actually as simple as this. I actually don't think this is that difficult of a passage to interpret. I understand if you're raised thinking, you know, the translation, you, thou shalt not kill. Okay, well, that's not the same as murder. So I could understand how it sounds a little broader. And then if you're raised in an interpretive community that's telling you it means a certain thing, I understand that. But one thing he should have done, if you're going to bet your life on this, moreover, if you're going to bet other people's life on your interpretation of the Bible, friends, this is where you got to start doing your homework. I'm not saying every morning you do your devotions, you get up in the morning and you get your coffee and you get out your Bible, that you need to be digging into the grammar and doing all these steps. I'm talking about. I don't think so. I don't think very all the time you need to do that. But I think especially when you're going to make a radical change that's going to impact other people's lives, it's you're going to possibly disobey the government, things of that nature, this is when you're going to have to be a workman. You are going to have to be a man or a woman who digs in and does the hard work of making sure that you are not misinterpreting the Bible. So the number one thing he could have done was look at the grammar. And here, since this is a rather simple case, he had just one word to look at. The word is in Hebrew here, ratzach. Now, rasach is one of seven words used in the Hebrew Bible to talk about killing. But it's actually a rare word. It is only used 47 times in the entire Hebrew Bible. And almost always, it has to do with premeditated killing of another person premeditated, violent killing of another person. So if Doss would have dug in and said, hey, what does this word mean? And if he would have looked at the Hebrew, it certainly narrows it down. Now, some of you might say, well, I didn't study Hebrew in seminary, Pastor Mike. How in the world am I supposed to know that? Well, there's a couple of things. First of all, even without having any facility whatsoever in the original languages, the next couple of steps I'm going to share probably are going to safeguard you just fine. But let's go ahead and pause for a moment. You and I live in a time where people who have never studied, that you have not in any traditional way spent the time, the, the hundreds of hours of studying Hebrew and Greek in a seminary environment, you today have more tools in the original languages at your disposal than almost any time in human history. Actually, I at any time in human history. So you can use, for example, free Bible apps 
like Bible Gateway or Blue Letter Bible. Maybe you have a favorite program. There's a bunch of them. They're free. They're online. And you can actually click on an interlinear feature. And what that'll do is that'll, underneath the English rendering of that passage, you will get the original language. You'll be able to scroll over the word and click on it, and you can begin to do your own basic word study. Again, yes, you always want to check your work with somebody who's studied original languages just to make sure, but you can actually do some of this work for yourself. And if you're interested in paying for some programs that are a little more detailed and give you more tools, there are great programs out there like Accordance Bible Software, which I personally use for Mac, and then there's also Logos Bible Software that's available for PCs. So you can actually dig in and do your own word study. So the word used here is not the normal word that just means kill in a broad sense. Rather, it is a restrictive word. It is a word that in its lexicography, the way that it is used throughout the Bible is almost entirely murder. And that is why even the new King James, which seeks to be as faithful as it can to the old King James and still uses the same Greek manuscripts, and yet they have changed and updated the word from kill to murder because that is what the word means. Again, for those of you that love the King James and that's your primary Bible, you could say, well, killing is not wrong. It's just not, it's that it's not as specific as it could be. And I know many people who've grown up on the King James, who love the King James. It's, it, I think it's, it's beautiful language in many places, even if some of the words are, uh, have changed or not used or even have changed the meaning uh, in significant ways. And yet even many people would say, well, I knew it meant murder, even though it said kill. And that's probably for the next couple of reasons that I'm going to talk about. So number one, grammar. Secondly, Old Testament context. Second step, Old Testament context. Now, I would say this is your next step, regardless of whether it's an Old Testament passage like this morning or even a New Testament passage, because the Bible builds up its teaching progressively. In other words, it's, it's sort of like mathematics in school. You, you don't just skip math. Uh, all the way up into high school, and then all of a sudden take, you know, an algebra class or something. Algebra assumes you've been studying math all the way along. And the Bible's kind of the same way. A, a lot of people want to dive into the, the New Testament without any benefit of the old. And by the grace of God, I, I think you can understand things, uh, certain things, but you're not going to stand all of it. And you're not going to understand what undergirds it, what elementary teachings have come before. So, my next step, even if you're the, it's a New Testament verse that's in dispute, start with Old Testament context. Now, what happens if you don't know Hebrew and you didn't know that you could, like Desmond Doss, he didn't even have uh, probably such tools available to him to look up the Hebrew. So the grammar uh, was probably just going to remain an issue for him, at least there. Uh, what does the Old Testament context tell us? Let me give you several passages, and you can feel free to write these down, that 
help us to understand exactly what is being said here with this Hebrew word rasach. Does it mean kill or murder? Genesis 9-6, very, very important text. Uh, ironically, because it does two things. Number one, Genesis 9-6 is going to give us the reason why murder is wrong because of spe specific human dignity. And it's also going to implement capital punishment in the same verse. Look at this. Genesis 9-6, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. That's capital punishment, folks. Capital punishment is being established. So already, if we have capital punishment being established, can the old interpretation of, of Exodus 20:13 be correct? Thou shalt not kill. Well, no, because they're actually being commanded to kill. If in the case of murder, you're, you're supposed to kill the, the murderer in Genesis 9:6. So that's established there. So that already creates a problem for the idea that killing is completely out the door in any context whatsoever. And watch this. Look what the rest of the verse says in Genesis 9:6. For in the image of God, he made man. Notice why it is wrong to commit murder. Because man is made in the image of God. God affords human beings dignity. This is an important Christian and Jewish theological foundation. Killing or murder is not wrong merely because it's pragmatic. The truth is many people, secular people, they, they don't have an ultimate ground for their ethics. They could agree with Christians and say murder's wrong, but they don't have the same basis for doing so. Many people can say, well, it's wrong, but you say, well, why? Well, because I don't want you to do that to me. Okay, well, that's fine, but that's a pragmatic argument. That's not some absolute universal argument. What if you're in a culture, and there's been many, where they change? They just say, well, no, we, it's no longer pragmatic. Um, actually, if, you know, if, I don't, if we don't kill you or get rid of you guys preemptively, then you might come back and do something to us. And people get into that whole uh, cycle of, of killing and war and all that kind of stuff. So what we actually see here is it's rooted in this idea that human beings have essential dignity. Human beings have essential dignity by virtue of being made in the image of God. But notice how in that very place, which Seventh-day Adventists earlier at the time of Das argued is, is, a, is an idea that warrants no killing, including in combat for self-defense, yet in that very verse we see capital punishment being instituted. So it appears already that it cannot mean thou shalt not kill, it means thou shalt not murder. Let's look at Exodus 21, 12 through 14. So this passage is coming right after Exodus 20. Because possibly somebody could say, well, in Genesis 9, 6, capital punishment's there. But that's before the, before the giving of the Mosaic Covenant at Sinai. And maybe God changed. Okay, maybe. Did he? Let's see. This is after our passage today, Exodus 20, 13. We have Exodus 21, 12 through 14, which says this. He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death, murder. However, if he did not lie in wait, premeditation, but God delivered him into his hand, then I will appoint a place for you where he may flee. But if a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor to kill him by treachery, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. So friends, do you see already we're having distinctions 
being made. There's a distinction between killing generally and there's a variety of different circumstances in which the Bible says it is potentially permissible and outright murder. I think without question, unlawful, premeditated, vengeful murder is always wrong. And that's the universal command. But we do see the Bible making distinctions. Let's look at Deuteronomy 7.2. Deuteronomy 7.2 says, And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them. Here we see the Lord sanctioning the use of warfare. The Lord is actually sanctioning the use of warfare. And this, of course, once again, follows the giving of the Ten Commandments. And again, we're presupposing that God does not contradict himself. I know there's people out there that have no problem saying, well, God contradicted himself. He doesn't know what he's saying. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's like a human being. He changes his mind and he forgets. Um, I disagree with that. I'd say that's a theological issue. We can uh, discuss it another time. But I would just point out that the orthodox, the correct historical understanding of the nature of God is that he is immutable. And that means he does not change. And he is omniscient. That means he doesn't go through a learning process where he's like, oh gosh, I thought this was a good idea. And then I realized a thousand years later, I made a mistake. No, God knows all things. He's immutable in his nature or as an essence. Doesn't mean his actions don't change, but it means his nature doesn't change. So we don't accept that idea that God is in process like you and I. He, he's becoming something and that he wasn't before. No, God does not change. And here we actually see God himself, the same God who instituted the sixth commandment, which is either thou shalt not kill or thou shalt not murder. And here he's commending warfare, actually commanding warfare to the Israelites. So you couldn't get any idea, I think, whatsoever. And I agree with Old Testament scholar, Hebrew scholar uh, at UC Berkeley, Robert Alter, that the, the idea of pacifism would have been utterly foreign to, the, to an ancient Israelite. Like they, it wouldn't have entered into their minds that that is what is being said. And for good biblical reason, not just ancient Near Eastern culture, but rather biblical reasons. Because God commanded them to go to war, and if God commanded them to go to war, he's not breaking his own commandment to not kill. Lastly, Exodus 22.2. Here we're going to see a verse regarding the legitimate use of killing in the context of self-defense. Exodus 22.2. If the thief is found breaking in, and he is struck so that he dies, there shall be no guilt for his bloodshed. So here we have somebody who, in, in the night, a thief breaks in, and the person defending themselves kills the thief, and they are not held guilty for murder. They're not held guilty of any charge, because it's a legitimate use of violence. It's a legitimate 
use of killing. Again, this is not saying you should try to kill if you don't need to. We'll talk a little bit about that when we get to the New Testament, but it means that if in the process of defending your own life, de defending the life of your family, if somebody breaks into your home in the middle of the night and you have, you're a Second Amendment person and you have a firearm and you shot the person, that is not a sin. And that's a very serious position for, for me to take, and it's a very serious position for a Seventh-day Adventist or anyone else to deny and claim biblical authority for doing so. These are very, very important things. So notice, friends, the serious significance between Bible interpretation and how we learn these things. Let's do a little bit more digging. After you've started off with step one, look at the grammar. And you've done step two, look at the Old, Old Testament context regarding this word or, or this idea. Uh, typically, it'll be both. You'll look at words and you'll look at ideas because ideas can incorporate uh, sometimes multiple words. Now we're going to look at New Testament context because some people will say not that Doss was right or the Seventh-day Adventist interpretation of Exodus 2013 was right. No, they say, oh, we agree. That was they were wrong. Uh, God was saying, thou shalt not murder, and that there is legitimate use of violence there. But, and this is maybe a little more common now, but in the New Testament, God changes it, and, and now it's wrong. Okay, so is that true? Does the New Testament say, even though it was legitimate for believers in God, obeying God's word, they could kill if it was in defense of, of their life, of their family, and that they could do so in warfare, in legitimate times of warfare. Does the New Testament change that? My answer is no, it does not. Let me give you a few passages. Number one, Romans 13.4. Now, if you'll notice, Romans 13 has been coming up an awful lot lately with the whole COVID thing and the government you know, shutting down and the rules and laws and, and mass and distancing, all, all that stuff. So people have been referring to Romans 13 a lot. But in case you're not familiar with it, it's a passage about the Christian duty to submit to civil authority. So those in the church are called to submit to civil authorities. Is there a limit over that? Absolutely. We're not getting into the whole uh, COVID thing and stuff like that. But yes, that's the general default position is we submit to the governing authorities. So that's the context. And listen to what Paul says. For he, that's the government agent, is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he who does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, an avenger, to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Now, the first question to ask is, is this a radical departure from the Old Testament, from what we've just looked at today? Or does this actually seem to be step in step, hand in hand, with what we've just said? And I'd say the answer is quite clearly, it goes step in step, hand in hand, with what we've already seen in the Old Testament. The establishment of capital punishment is being supported right here. Scholars agree this idea of bearing the sword in vain and being the avenger is speaking about capital punishment. And therefore, Paul is not saying, hey, now that we're in Christ and uh, that there's a new advent and God's got a new plan and now it's wrong, um, even though Exodus 20, 13 didn't mean thou shalt number it, but we are saying that now, no. 
we what we're seeing is Paul is supporting, inspired by the Spirit. He's an apostle. He is saying that it's still there's a still legitimate use of killing that is not murder and that is not um, abrogated by the New Covenant. Now I'm going to cite a couple of passages that people often use to try to say that Jesus taught that there's Christians are not to be to kill, even including in self-defense situations or war or in law enforcement or something of that nature. So let's take these head on. Matthew 5, 38 through 40, Jesus said this, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. So what is Jesus teaching here? Is he talking about Christians are not to go to war or that if somebody's trying to kill you or your family, you are supposed to let them. Is that what Jesus is saying? And the answer here is no. That is not what Jesus is saying. First of all, the principle is one of non-retaliation. He's giving a principle. And it's one of non-retaliation or revenge. Jesus is preaching against that. And so he's putting a spotlight on motivations, and he's going to do that even more in just a moment in the final passage we'll look at. But revenge and retaliation across the board. Notice, this is not just about violence. First of all, the slapping of the cheek is not so much an act of violence. So if you dig in and do a little study, you'll find out that this idea of slapping someone on the cheek is not violence. Your life is not being threatened. It's an insult. It's an insult. It is extreme disrespect. And so this is a this is still a very challenging commandment. When somebody gets in your face and says, you're a loser, or they call you a, a racial name, or or what you're you're a racist, you're this, you're that, you're 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 whatever it is, just some horrible name, and, and you're getting upset or you're get you're getting offended, and you're going to be tempted as a Christian to retaliate to get revenge on somebody or you're you're online and you're posting things and somebody's trolling you and and just harassing you and stuff like that and you're just anxious and you want to type nasty things in return or or getting in caught up in politics and people there's just a spirit of revenge in politics and I I think it's utterly abhorrent for Christians to engage in that cycle and culture of revenge and retaliation that we see politicians engaging in every day. We have to be very, very careful we don't get sucked into that. And that's primarily what Jesus is talking about. Now, how do you know that? Well, first of all, like I said, you look up this idea of the, the slapping of the cheek. What is that? You find out if you do background study, it's an insult. Secondly, you look at the following verses because they're meant to be taken together. Because you might say, what does... Someone suing you and taking your tunic have to do with killing or murder or self-defense or war. Well, if that's what he's if if we think violence is what Jesus is talking about, then the answer is nothing. It has nothing to do with it. Taking your tunic or taking you to court that has nothing to do with physical violence whatsoever. But if you recognize you're put you're meant to put these two verses together, these two illustrations, because they're both pointing at the principle that Jesus is talking about. What's the principle then that they both share? Non-retaliation. So it is not 
a teaching on the use of physical force really at all. It is a teaching on non-retaliation. And that, in fact, is a Christian principle. Absolutely. And we are called to adhere to that. Now, that does that apply to use of force situations, whether self-defense or war? Oh, absolutely. And that's not a cop-out. Even in a self-defense situation, if you don't have to you know, go beyond a certain level, you don't have to kill somebody, then you shouldn't. And if you're going to war and maybe you, you shoot enemy combatants that are shooting you, but then what happens once you've captured them and they're disarmed? You're not allowed to shoot them. You don't get revenge on them. The self-defense threat to you, your company, your troop, your country is over. You have no right to just kill them, which many soldiers do. And so Christianity would certainly teach against not uh, against that kind of revenge. There's a principle of non-retaliation. Look at Matthew 5, 21 through 32. Another thing the New Testament does is it takes the problem of murder deeper. It looks to its source. Murder is not just that which happens outward. Jesus says ultimately it's something that begins in the heart. Matthew 5, 21 through 22 says this. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. So again, what Jesus is doing is he's getting down into the cause of murder in the world. And it is hatred in the human heart. I think many of us would say, I've never murdered, and I don't think I ever, ever would. But friends, we cannot be naive about human nature. Human beings are capable of murder. And I, and as scary as it might be to admit that any human being in the right or wrong extre extreme situations could possibly murder, I think it's more scary to deny that's a possibility. To deny that's a possibility is to allow, once again, some of the greatest atrocities in human history to occur again. You know, to look at the Nazis and say, oh, well, they were just these super weird non-humans. No, they were human beings. And they were, you know, modern people. They were the highest, most modern, advanced country technologically uh, of all the countries, and yet they were able to do the kinds of things they did. So we have to recognize all human beings can do that, even if they're not doing it now. Looking at the way people are, the rhetoric right now, the way the hatred is growing in, in United States culture, even though maybe not everyone's murdering, although we are seeing that. We saw a shooting in Denver again the other day, and I think that's going to happen more. Be, not, and it's not because of laws regarding gun control or this, that, or the other. It's because hatred is growing, and nobody is checking it. Nobody is dealing with it. And people are even saying, as long as you hate the right people, then it's okay. If you hate people on the left or if you hate people on the right, then it's okay. Jesus says, no. If you hate anybody, if you hate your enemies, how about that? If you hate your enemies, you're already committing murder in the heart. So even there, Jesus is not talking about use of force per se in self-defense or, or warfare or capital punishment, but he is eliminating the cause of murder in the world because murder begins with hatred in the heart. And so the Bible teaches against that. Christianity teaches against that. So we have the three basic objective steps for us to go through 
when we're interpreting a text that's going to lead to a radical change in our life, that's going to lead to conflict with people around us, with the government, with people of other groups or other nations or whatever it is, we need to go, okay, I think this is what it means, but I'm going to go back and I'm going to do these three steps. I'm going to check the grammar. I'm going to check the Old Testament context. I'm going to check the New Testament context. And I'm going to see if the interpretation I have holds water. I think if Desmond Doss were to have been led through these things, there is a chance he would have understood that God was not prohibiting him from bearing an arm in, in battle. Again, as, as God is sovereign and he's gracious, and even though he was wrong, Doss was wrong in his interpretation of the Bible, and it could have cost people lives if he wasn't willing to shoot an enemy that was about to bayonet one of his friends, and yet we can commend him for his extreme courage in rescuing and, and saving uh, over 70 people at the Battle of Hacksaw Ridge. So we, we commend that, we commend his courage to follow his beliefs, but the courage to follow your beliefs, friends, is not enough. You have to rightly understand the Bible. Let me give you just a bonus uh, subjective tools that I recommend you have. So in addition to these three objective tools, let me give you some bonus subjective tools. Who should you be as a Bible interpreter? Just three things. Number one, humility. It's important that an interpreter of the Bible have humility. To be able to say, I think... Think, I really think it means this. Be, I, I want it to mean this, but I could be wrong. I want to listen to this person. I want to listen to that person. I want to, I, I'm going to double check my work. I'm going to go through the Bible and I'm going to make sure and I'm going to read articles and I'm going to go through this and just humility. Maybe I'm not always right. Friends, there's a lot of people out there that cannot believe they're ever wrong about anything. That's pride. God's never wrong, but that doesn't mean you're never wrong about what God has said. Humility. Number two, self-awareness. A lot of people, they, they just don't even know what they don't know. That's one of the biggest problems I've found with Bible interpretation with people. They don't even know what they don't know. One of the things that's so helpful is self-awareness. Now, how do you become self-aware? It's when you interact with people who aren't like you. So as a Christian, that means talking to non-believers about their perspectives on things. It means talking with other believers, whether a Seventh-day Adventist, whether a Presbyterian or an Anglican or a Charismatic or a Calvary Chapel or an Assemblies of God or a Methodist, a Baptist, or whatever it is. As we interact with all these people, we become more and more self-aware of our idiosyncrasies. Because until you do that, you really are not aware of those things that you just don't know. So self-awareness. And then thirdly, diligence. Look, friends, we live in a time when people are sentimental and even lazy about their Bible study. Sentimental in the sense that we, we just want to believe that whatever the first thought I have when I read the Bible, that's right. Well, no, that's not true. Sometimes the first thought you have is wrong. And then again, just, just laziness. People, they, they want an entertaining message. And I know that as a pastor, most people are going to flock to a pastor, not that teaches them the hard work of how to interpret the Bible, but just funny stories, make you laugh, um, you know, show a movie clip, whatever it is. Um, not against those things per se, but you've got to teach people to do the hard work of Bible study. It's not always easy, just like relationships. 
People want relationships to be easy. Well, guess what? Sure, maybe if you fall in love, there's some ease to it. But as time goes on, you will see there is hard work. Every good thing has hard work involved with it. Same thing is true with your Bible study. So don't be turned off by having to do hard work. And what principle, what biblical principle, what Bible verse could we end with that sums this all up? If I could give a a verse to Desmond Doss, if I could give a verse to you, what would it be for us that summarizes this message? It would be 2 Timothy 2.15. 2 Timothy 2.15 says this, Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Friends, we are to study. The word is labor because we're showing ourselves to prove unto God. And we need to be very, very careful. We are rightly dividing the word of truth. Friends, I have seen time and time again in the middle of this COVID thing where people are very angry and fearful when in the middle of the election, people are grabbing Bible verses left and right out of context and making them say whatever it is they already believe or they want to say. Friends, we are not allowed to do that. Before you go throwing a verse out to support some feeling like Desmond Doss you might have, Make sure you've studied to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that doesn't need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you and praise you for your word. Lord, we thank you that it is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. Lord, I thank you for blessing us with the whole canon of scripture. I thank you. You've given us all 66 books to study. Lord, I thank you for all the tools you've given us. I thank you for giving us pastors and teachers to help us to work through this. Lord, we know that most people are not called to study a verse or a passage for 20 hours a week, but that doesn't mean that they cannot be diligent in listening to good teachers. It doesn't mean they don't have to be diligent with the time they have to study your word. Lord, help us not to be slothful or lazy in your word. Lord, help us not to be people who misuse your word, putting words into your mouth you have not said, or taking words out of your mouth that you have. Lord, help us to say what you have said and to abstain from that which you have not. Lord, lead your people to be workmen and workwomen that do not need to be ashamed, that we will rightly divide the word of truth. Lord, I ask for a blessing now over our congregation. In Jesus' name, amen.